Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of a theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello there. Let's start this episode with some housekeeping and some updates on the podcast. First off, you've likely noticed that there are more episodes than usual. Remember when I said I would start doing interviews on the show? Well, it turned out that that really has gone much better than I ever expected. Now, as a result, I have recorded many more interviews than expected. Now, I could keep releasing interviews on the normal bi-weekly schedule. But if I did that, then it would be exclusively interviews well into 2021. Admittedly, I did think of that and just thought of allowing the podcast to run on cruise control for a bit, but I decided against it, mainly because there are more topics I'd like to discuss and more solo episodes I'd like to do. Sticking to the bi-weekly schedule ties my hands a bit with regard to the high-level narrative thread on the podcast. That brings me to the next point about pacing on the podcast. Doing interviews brings different perspectives and new context to things previously discussed on the podcast. Here's an example. I did an episode a while back on the four types of work that introduced the Flow Framework. Then, a few months later, Mick Kirsten came on the show to discuss the Flow Framework and really build upon the previous episode. I think that's wonderful and something special to small batches that I haven't heard on other podcasts. Now, my problem is trying to keep these things closer together, so you, the listener, don't lose all that context between these types of episodes. So, like right now, there are so many interviews already recorded and an equal number currently scheduled. That pushes the timelines out, which stretches the context, which makes it harder to plan and ultimately more challenging to me to even produce this podcast. So, for the time being, I will release episodes more frequently until the interview backlog is burned down a bit. After that, it will be much easier for me to maintain and drive the narrative thread on the podcast. So, enjoy the assortment of guests coming your way. I assure you there are many more great ones in the pipeline. All right, so after all that, we will return to the regular bi-weekly schedule. I think that's really a good pace for the podcast. I'm toying with the idea of doing alternating solo and interview episodes on a certain topic. So, for example, a month might be the Flow Framework month, with one solo episode on the topic from myself, and then an interview to discuss it more in depth. I'm also toying with the idea of doing a week-long series on a particular topic. I've seen this format on other podcasts, and I really like it because it allows you to go much deeper into the topic. So, if you think back to the previous episodes on this whole point one factor app, those I think would have worked really well in that format. In fact, I had already written all of them before recording the first one. Then, maybe we could end the week with a guest interview related to that topic. This has already kind of happened by having Joe Kuttner on the show to discuss the 12 factor app. But let's see though. I'm always thinking about the format and the best way to share software delivery education with all of you. Just a quick recap of everything so far before I move on to the announcement. There are a lot of interviews to burn down before we can get back to the regular scheduled programming. 
So expect more frequent interview episodes in the short term before we get back to a mix of solo and interview episodes. All right, it's announcement time and I'm stoked about this one. I'm doing a five-part solo episode series called The Saltside Chronicles. This series covers my time at Saltside, where we completed a ground-up rewrite of the entire product just to launch a mobile app. There is so much that I could say about Saltside on this podcast that I couldn't leave this story on the table because it's a story about software architecture, technical debt, business agility, and success in the market. All the things that I try to tie together on small batches. So it will be a five-part series with a new episode Monday through Friday. I'll cover the high-level story, the business and tech factors that led up to the rewrite, splitting a monolith into microservices, and a reflection on that entire effort through the lens of what I know now. If you know me, then you've probably heard me talk about Saltside. If you haven't yet, well, then you'll get the full story with this series. I'm excited to share this story with all of you. And if you're listening to this and you are part of the Saltside Chronicles, and I know that some of you are, then consider it my tribute to what we were able to accomplish together. The release date is still TBD, but I assure you it will be in 2020. I think it will be a great way to end the year. All right, so now that the housekeeping is out of the way, time to introduce today's guest. Today, I'm speaking with Torin Sondal. Torn is a maintainer on the Open Policy Agent Project. Let me read off a bit from the official project description. The Open Policy Agent, or OPA, pronounced OPA, is an open source general purpose policy engine that unifies policy enforcement across the stack. OPA provides a high level declarative language that lets you specify a policy as code and simple APIs to offload policy decision making from your software. You can use OPA to enforce policies in microservices, Kubernetes, CI CD pipelines, API gateways, and more. All right. Well, I found Torin when I was teaching myself Rego. Rego is the language behind OPA. Now, to make a long story short, I fell in love with Rego and the associated tool called ConfTest because I could write pre-commit hooks and pre-flight checks for Kubernetes manifests as well as any other data structure I could think of. I invited Torin on the show to discuss the origin of the project, why even write a custom language in the first place, and how OPA fits into DevSecOps. Now, and finally, I give you my conversation with Torin Sandal. Torin, welcome to the show. So I've already introduced you in my own words. Why don't you introduce yourself in your own words? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So my name is Torin. I am the vice president of open source at Styra, and I'm also one of the co-creators of Open Policy Agent, or OPA, as we like to call it. I spend most of my time kind of leading design and development around Open Policy Agent, and I love kind of engaging with the community and, and chatting with users and talking about how people are using OPA in the field. Cool. So how long have you been working on OPA and what was sort of the genesis for this project? So now I know it's part of, was it? incubating status in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Seems like it's had a sort of good run. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so, so Open Policy Agent is, is part of the Cloud Native Compute Foundation. We donated it in, in 2018. So we started the project at Styra, the company that I work for, back in like early 2016. So Styra was sort of, I won't go into too much detail, but that was started to essentially like rethink policy and authorization in the enterprise. 
open policy agent is sort of a part of that overall vision. So at Stara, we, we started the project almost five years ago now. And you know, over the last five years, the project grew. You know, doctors showed up, other contributors showed up, and eventually we made the decision to donate it to, to Cloud Native Computing Foundation, CNCF. Uh, so that was in 2018. And then fast forward a year, 2019, it was promoted to the incubating stage in within CNCF. And you know, going forward, we're we're looking forward to, you know, we're looking towards like graduation and, and moving ahead in the in the in the foundation. So for the listeners who are unfamiliar with problem domain of policy and authorization, can you can I give an elevator pitch for the use cases for OPA and the problem it's trying to solve? So OPA, it, it basically lets you control, you know, who can do what at any layer of the stack. So whether you're talking about API authorization inside of a microservice or an application, or you're talking about putting down like safeguards and guardrails over your Kubernetes cluster, or you're talking about, you know, enforcing checks and even linting rules in a CICD pipeline, uh, Open Policy Agent gives you kind of one unified way of expressing policy or authorization across the stack. Typically, you know, in the past, before something like OPA or Open Policy Agent, a lot of these policies would just get kind of like written down on wikis or they'd be tracked in spreadsheets. It'd be like, you know, a spreadsheet says these machines are in this category of network and they should only talk to machines in, in that category of network. And it was up to Alice or whoever to, you know, every couple of months, look at that spreadsheet and, and double check that things were cool and, and kind of go from there. Right. And, and that, that, that's the approach that a lot of organizations take. Obviously, you know, you can start to imagine ways where that falls over, right? It doesn't scale very well. You have no guarantee that things are being enforced. It's, it's just not a good way to operate, right? Operating based on spreadsheets and tribal knowledge is risky. And so Open Policy Agent, what it does is it takes those same policies that people might write down in PDFs or wikis or whatever, um, and it allows you to write them in a high-level declarative language that both humans and machines can understand, and then it gives you a runtime for having those enforced inside the system. You mentioned you could use OPA for authorization between microservices or enforce things like in a Kubernetes cluster or even as part of like linting in your CI pipeline. So can you explain briefly about a high-level architecture for how it would work with, say, authorization between two microservices? So if I want to do something like this, do I need to have a running OPA server or service? I mean, what does this look like in practice for somebody who wants to use these tools? Yeah, so so depending on the use case, depending on where the kinds of policies you're enforcing and where those policies need to be enforced, it's a little bit different. But kind of the way that we think about OPA is that it's essentially a host local cache for policy decision making. So ideally, OPA is running next to the piece of software that it's policy enabling or that policy queries are coming from. So if you're talking about API authorization in a microservice environment, authorization queries or decisions need to be happening at that microservice level on the on the server where the microservice is running, right? You don't want to have the microservice, let's say, call out across the network every time it has to make a policy query. Because if you do that, things are going to get slow, you're going to suffer downtime and, and so on, right? Like if you think about, you know, a, a large application with many microservices, the processing of an individual request to the application may have to flow through a bunch of different microservices. And if each and every single hawk you're calling over the network, you're going to kill yourself. So what you want is for that decision-making to kind of be local. So what that typically looks like is people take OPA and they will just deploy it on the same server where the microservice is running. So if you're in Kubernetes, you know, you'd use what's called like the sidecar pattern, which is basically like you have your microservice container um, running in what's called a pod in Kubernetes. And then OPA is also running in that same pod um, as a separate container. They're sort of like joined together, but you're not limited to just Kubernetes with OPA. You can also you know, run in, in, in bare metal environments or in just virtualized in, in like EC2 instances um, where OPA is just running as another process on the host. And you can also embed it as a library. It's written in Go. So it's, it's intended to be kind of pretty flexible. You can kind of drop it in, but ideally it's just running as close to the software as, as possible. 
Okay, I got it. That makes sense. So what is the most common use case you've seen for OPA? So they're kind of, I, I, it's hard to say at this point, we, we released a survey back in April that was like a user survey that we did where we had like, I don't know, it was like 200 respondents from a lot of organizations. And it, it was actually interesting because it, it showed that like a lot of the respondents were using OPA across multiple use cases. And so and it was almost it was almost evenly split between a couple of them. So the two big use cases that we see people running OPA for are um, API authorization in, in microservice environments, right? Saying, you know, service A can talk to service B, but not service C, or, you know, internal users can access these APIs, but not those other APIs and so on, that, that kind of stuff. The other broad, broad category of use cases is what I call like config validation and specifically configuration validation in, in Kubernetes environments. When you're talking about config validation in Kubernetes, it's often about admission control, right? So basically taking OPA and putting it on the on, the, on a Kubernetes cluster and then protecting access to, to sensitive or to, to resources in the cluster, compute network and storage resources in the cluster, like load balancers and you know all, all kinds of different resources that make up your, your Kubernetes environments. Okay, so let's take a step back for a minute. So I'm not sure that uh, everybody who's listening may be familiar with the concept of emission controllers in Kubernetes. Sure, so sure. the idea here is that you know inside Kubernetes, you're going to have all these manifests that say like you have these containers, these resources, memory, CPU, like security, permissions, like can you run as root, you know, special flags, all that stuff. The idea with the admission controller is that you can use an admission controller to validate if a certain resource should be allowed on the cluster. So you can write rules that say, don't allow images from this registry or require that all of the containers in a deployment have a certain like security flag or the resources like the CPU memory are set like this or not like that. So if I understand correctly, you can use OPA in combination with an admission controller to make these decisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like you, like you described, Kubernetes allows developers to provision or control through desired state the compute network and storage resources that make up their applications. So what containers are going to run, where they're going to run, how they're going to be exposed on the internet, how they can talk to each other, what storage resources they're going to use, and so on, right? All of that is specified through you know, what they call desired state in Kubernetes, right? It's just conf- basically configuration objects, right? You know, let's say, run this container, yada, yada, yada. What admission control is, is, is it's sort of like the last stage in the API server, which is like the central point through which all kind of Kubernetes API requests come in, through which you can enforce any kind of validation or any kind of guardrails or security policies essentially on those on those resources. So like after the request has been authenticated and some really coarse-grained high-level authorization has been applied, the admission controllers kick in. And that's where all kinds of things like quota image policies and all other kinds of admission control rules are enforced. And that's where OPA hooks in to Kubernetes typically. Okay, so then you mentioned the second use case, which was, I think as you described it, static config validation. So this is how I came to OPA. I think a common problem that people who work in Kubernetes have, and you know, something that I have encountered for sure, is that once you get to a point where your manifests are sufficiently complex, there's semantic issues that you can introduce that will cause problems, and that there's just validation issues that you can introduce that might not be caught by something like kubectl-validate or even kubeval, which is even stricter than, than kubectl. So like the idea is that there was like an issue where I had written a manifest for a Kubernetes deployment and specified the match labels, but then those match labels didn't match the actual labels in the deployment. Now kubectl will gladly apply that, but the API server will throw an error. So then after a certain amount of time, sort of to think like, hey, there's got to be a better way to actually do some sort of higher level validation on these things before we actually move to the deployment pipeline and throw them at the API. That scenario also expands out to other kinds of config validation. Like, say, for example, it could be functional stuff. 
It could be, you know, as you mentioned, policies like, hey, is a certain security flag set? Like, are you allowed to use this or that? But it applies way broader than just Kubernetes. Like, say, for example, let's say that you're working in an organization and you're publishing NPM packages and you have internal packages. Then maybe you want to test that inside that package.json, the private flag is always set to true. So they can never be published to the public NPM repository. So like there's all kinds of ways that static config validation can enter the picture. So this is actually my favorite part about the Open Policy Agent project, which is the, like the I guess it's the hand-rolled or custom-made language called Rego. So can you tell us a little bit about Rego and what you can do with it? And I'm also curious, why make a new language for this? Like Why not just reuse something that's already there? You know, Open Policy Agent and Rego, they kind of go hand in hand. They were created at the same time to serve the same purpose, right? Rego is basically a, a high-level declarative language that borrows its semantics from some like old logic-based programming systems. And it, it's adapted those, those language semantics to deal with basically like arbitrary, deeply nested structured data. So aka JSON or, or YAML, right? And the reason why we built Rego for Open Policy Agent was that if you look at the world today, right, like every API that a developer will publish today is based on deeply nested hierarchical structured data, right? Like every API serves JSON or, or some variant, something similar to that. All configuration files are kind of following that, that format these days. Um, all these systems are coming out that are based on this like desired state concept like Kubernetes. What you need from a policy system today is a language that allows you to write down rules that validate all kinds of different things, like just basic semantic validation that you alluded to, but other, other kinds of settings that affect you know, your uptime or your cost or your security or your best practices or whatever, right? You need a way to write those kinds of rules down against deeply nested hierarchical structured data. And so when we started Open Policy Agent, you know, looking around, the, there just weren't really any viable alternatives at the time. If you talk to people that build DSLs all the time, like one of the things they'll tell programming languages, they'll say, don't do it. It's a lot of work, right? You got to create a tool chain and you got to optimize it. And there's a whole bunch of work that goes into that process. Um, and so the first thing to do is just avoid it, like avoid that problem, use something that already exists. And so we, we tried that at the beginning. I say we, but it was actually, it was Tim, who, who's one of the co-creators of OPA. He tried using SQL to, to write these kinds of policies. And at the time, we were looking at using SQL to kind of say these kinds of things, like, for example, you know, no host should be exposed on the public internet if it's, if it's exposing port 80 or telnet or whatever you want. And we tried to do that using, uh, using a cloud provider's APIs. And it was, it, was, it was a nightmare because what you ended up having to do was take this data coming from this cloud provider and flatten it out into that, into that flat kind of like relational model. I think at the time there was something like 250 like synthetic tables that, that got introduced that you look look at as a SQL author and have no idea what they meant. And then what you found when you were writing the SQL was that you basically had to reconstruct all these joins just to get back to this hierarchical data structure. And so what you really want to just be able to do is kind of like dot down through the JSON that comes back from the API and say, you know, this thing is exposing port 80 and it's whatever, right? So we, we tried other things, you know, we tried, uh, we tried SQL, we tried some other language and it just wasn't working. And so we figured, okay, what we need is something new um, and something that's really purpose built for this, this kind of problem. And so that's why we created the language. And so that's why I say like the, the two are kind of very tightly joined together because Open Policy Agent is basically a runtime for Rego, right? It's a runtime to get those policies enforced. And it's, it's designed with a bunch of ideas in mind that make it a good fit for, for policy enforcement, right? If it's designed to run as a host level cache. It's designed to be as lightweight as possible so you can drop it in to things like a CICD pipeline. Um, it's designed to be performant. It's got a whole bunch of different design considerations that, that influence the way it is. Yeah, for sure. So I can echo that with my own experiences using Rego. So for the listeners, I 
came to Rego trying to replace some like hand-rolled Kubernetes validation I wrote in Node.js. It's kind of a recurring problem that I've had. But anyway, came to Rego and thought like, hey, let's give this a try. So one thing I want to just clarify is that you know, Rego is a part of the Open Policy Agent project. You can use Rego and kind of that whole tool chain independently of this concept of emission controllers and integration with other things and you know all of that. So you can do, you know you can do both, but you don't have to. So you know, Torn, you mentioned speed, and I can tell you that it's definitely fast compared to some of the other ways that you might validate stuff. Using Rego is really fast. The kind of thing is that upon initial inspection of a language, it definitely looks weird. But once you start to like, once you start to understand it, it's like, yeah, okay. Like one of the things that kind of threw me off in the beginning was, hey, like there's these underscores, like what are those? But now it's like, okay, yeah, that's just a placeholder for some iteration variable that I don't care about. Like just, hey, just loop over this thing. I don't care. Just do it for me. And then write assertions that, you know, you can write deny rules, pass rules, you know, however, you, you know, you want to think about it. So one thing I'm curious on is, you know, you have a tool like Rego now where you can write um, pretty much any kind of validation rule that you could come up with on structured data in one file or even combined structured data across multiple files that might reference like structures in other files. You can express all kinds of rules in Rego. How does it relate to something like JSON schema? If you're using Rego to do some stuff, you have the idea of JSON schema. JSON schema only applies to JSON, where Rego you can use for any structured data. Is there an overlap or point where you would use one or not the other? So, so JSON schema, it lets you define the structure of the data that you're, that you're working with. So it's really good at letting you say, like, this field can be a string, or this field must exist, and it must be a number that's greater than seven or something like that. I think you can have JSON schemas that refer to other schemas and so on. But fundamentally, what it's letting you do is, is basically put some assertions or constraints at the individual field level in a JSON document, right? And so it's simply a schema in, in any other system. Where that starts to fall over is when you need to express things that are more like relational, right? So if you wanted to say that this field must be set if this other field isn't set, or this field must be greater than seven if this other field isn't set, that's where it starts to get a little bit tricky. And that's where you need something a little bit more expressive, right? So the way that I would look at it is that JSON schema is almost like a language, right? It's a way of putting down some constraint on some data, but it's not as expressive as like a full-blown programming language, but there's a place for that. Now, so OPA kind of, or Rego, lives in between that, in that kind of continuum of expressiveness with JSON schema all, all the way over on one side and a full-blown programming language over on the, on the other side. Yeah, that's a good explanation of it because that's how I came into writing my own hand-rolled validations because I had been using JSON schema. You know, you could express presence or absence, but you can't do anything on top of the logic, right? Like if you have this field and you need to have this, or maybe this field, this value has to match a value in this other object or any kind of conditional stuff. Like, So once you have logic, then you've escaped the capacity of JSON schema and then you need something else. So beyond just Kubernetes validation, how have you seen Rego used? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're always surprised by the, the use cases that people come up with for Rego and OPA. I like to use the term config validation to apply to Kubernetes because I think that you know a lot of the people that start using OPA and Rego for Kubernetes quickly graduate to using it for like something else in their infrastructure or in their platform. So we see lots of folks using it for, for systems like Terraform. We see people using it for things like CloudFormation. You know, anytime you have some desired state that describes your platform that you run your workloads on, 
Rango is a good fit for writing down safeguards and, and putting in kind of guardrails. So lots of interest around using it for just different kind of cloud provider resources, right? That are today often represented in, in YAML or JSON, basically. Yeah. Okay. So now that you mentioned it, like I kind of went through the same progression myself. Like once I started to gain some confidence with Rego, I thought like, hey, I can use this for so much more stuff. And that's what got me so excited about it. Just like personally, I'm really keen on linting and any kind of static analysis that we can add, ideally like in the pre-commit phase or somewhere in the whole like pipeline. If we can have fast static analysis that guarantees that we're free of certain regressions, that's that's wonderful. And as you said, we write a lot of these configuration files. They could be Terraform, they could be YAML, they could be JSON, Tomo. I mean, think of how many .json files or YAML files exist at the root of project directories these days, right? So learning Rego for me was sort of an on-ramp to, hey, I can use this one tool to solve all these different problems, put that in A, it's fast as hell, like compared to all the other stuff. So there's no worry about hey, this is going to be too slow to put at this stage, right? Like I can add this into the pre-commit hook, no fear, and then put it in the pipeline also. So to bring the conversation back to JSON Schema, the past company I used to work for, we had designed the whole JSON API and we had used JSON schemas as a way to set the contract between the providers of the API and the consumers of the API. And what we did was a way to validate incoming requests was we just validate incoming requests using the JSON schema. And then once we had generated the response, use the, you know, the outgoing contract to verify the response. And this would give us like easy ways to maintain contract correctness. But that was with JSON schema. Now, if I could, okay, that code wasn't written in Go, but if it was, I could potentially use Rego as a way to just quickly verify the incoming outgoing response contracts. So like, as you say, once you start to grok these tools, I think there's just an expanding use for them. Is that something that you have seen in your own experience or working with clients for your company? Yeah, definitely. I think the, the funniest one that I remember was like one, one user who's given some talks about, about using OPA for, for API authorization and other bread and butter use cases, wrote a blog post about how you could like use OPA as a rule engine for an RPG game. So like, I don't know, this person like was really into RPGs like a long time ago and, and, and kind of used it. So he like codified all the rules about, you know, uh, what happens when you get hit by like a bronze sword versus like an iron sword and stuff like that. So you, you can take it to like a, to a crazy extreme, but, but generally this is like the kind of the, the, the story that we see play out in organizations that adopt OPA and Rego is that they, they come across it because it solves some very concrete particular problem that they have, right? They need to stop, uh, you know, conflicting ingress resources from being instantiated inside of Kubernetes, right? And then, so they, they find that tutorial, they run it, they're like, cool, this, this, I'm, I'm good. Then they come back a week later and they realize, oh, hey, the developers in my company can create network policies in Kubernetes that allow egress traffic to any IP address in the world, right? Well, I'm in cybersecurity at a large financial institution, and I'm a little bit worried about my data being exfiltrated from my network, right? So I'm going to use OPA to put some guardrails in place over network configs in, in Kubernetes. And so it kind of slowly expands over time. And, you know, we see folks that are just extremely productive with it. Um, I've talked to folks that haven't developed in like 20 years that just think about things like security and policy at very high levels. And when they get down to it and they start using Rego, they find themselves to be extremely productive with it. So I think that the fact that it is domain agnostic and not tied to any project or domain specific data model makes it extremely, extremely powerful. And it's something that you can, once you kind of grok it, you just find all kinds of places where you, where you can leverage it. Yeah, I think that speaks to high quality architecture of the project overall, is that there are discrete bits of this tool that you can use in 
discrete problems. You don't have to buy into the whole thing, right? Like you can use Rego or you can use OPA and just use the like Rego validation part to write policies and even write tests for the policy. So got to give a shout out to anything designed with TDD design like in mind that you can just write the policy or write and have a test for it. Like that is such a big thing that honestly is surprising to me. That's kind of just skipped in some places. So congratulations and thank you so much for that. For the listener, there's another project. I'm not sure if it's part of like the whole OPA kind of project, but ConfTest. So ConfTest is a tool around Rego that allows you to write Rego policies outside the scope of OPA. It's kind of designed to do static config validation. And the idea with ConfTest is that you can create your policies, commit them to your repo, and then run some tests against the data in your repo against these policies. So is a comp test part of the whole OPA under that whole umbrella or is it separate? Because I know it's maintained by, was it Instrumenta or some some different guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So comp test uh, was a project that a fellow called Gareth Rushgrove created. And it was essentially a way of taking Rego pol- or you know, open policy agent policies, Rego policies, and having them run against arbitrary kind of config files, regardless of the format, right? So it, it has a bunch of parsers inside of it for you know, not just YAML and, and JSON, which Opus supports out of the box, but like Docker files and, you know, PIP files and, um, you know, varnish config files and stuff like that, right? Like just arbitrary kind of config files. So it takes those config files, it converts them into, into essentially JSON. It's not quite JSON, but JSON internally. Um, and then it loads that into Open and runs your policies against it. So it provides, it provided like a, it provided, initially provided like this really nice kind of developer user experience for somebody who wants to write policy over arbitrary config files. And so I think that was that was about a year and a half ago now. Uh, and so over the last year and a half, the, the project, we're chatting a lot and we were watching the kind of the project grow. And it was really cool to see that adoption um, happen pretty much organically. Like I think, you know, there were some talks about it, but it just kind of kept getting momentum and traction. And so earlier this year, the open maintainers and the, and the ConfTest maintainers got together. We were chatting. We figured that it made sense for ConfTest to become part of the overall open policy agent project. You know, a couple months ago, there were some press releases about it, but basically the ConfTest project is now part of OPA proper. Uh, it's hosted under Open Policy Agent on GitHub. Um, and so it's a kind of like a first-class OPA sub-project along with uh, Gatekeeper. So it's totally part of OPA now. And it's nice because it means that we'll have like better kind of communication and collaboration between the two different kind of groups of developers. Um, and, you know, we also plan to sort of take some of the ideas that were kind of essentially incubated inside of ConfTest um, and to bring them into like Oprah proper, you know, in the, in the near future. Oh, yeah. Like what? So there, there are a couple things. So I already mentioned one of them, which is just having like broader support for different file formats, right? The fact that you can just throw arbitrary kind of structured files at it and, and get out um, a policy decision is, is super useful from a developer user experience point of view. So bringing in support for formats other than JSON and YAML is something um, we looked at. Another thing that it brings in or that it kind of introduced was this notion of just making it really easy to test data on the command line, right? So like OPA has a test subcommand, but that test subcommand is for testing your policies. It's for running your your unit tests for your policies. Um, What ConfTest is, is basically a, a framework or a way of testing data, of testing config files. And so kind of... Have, it'll probably look like another subcommand in OPA um, eventually, but having some way of easily validating data files um, using policy um, was one thing. And then also just the ability to kind of push and pull and share policies was something that ComTest introduced is the ability to take a, a, an OPA bundle and, and push it up to like a container registry and then have it pulled from there is, is something that's, that's also interesting. So yeah, there are a bunch of interesting ideas that were really nicely kind of packaged together in ComTest. Yeah, that's true. So for the listener, when Warren mentioned configuration validation on the command line, 
say if you're using something like Circle CI or CodeFresh or any of these like hosted CI systems, they'll probably have some CLI you can download and one of the commands will be lint or validate that will check your pipeline definition is valid. So conf test gives you a way to do that against arbitrary structured data in anywhere, right, on your file system. And what he also mentioned was something really cool, the capacity to bundle and share policies. So for example, you could hypothetically create a policy for all of the engineers or all of the services in your, your organization, whatever. It's like, here's security policy. Things should validate against a security policy or some sort of like Kubernetes manifest validation. So it gives you a way to push those policies, like publish them in a way that they could be consumed. So that's good news about, uh, about ConfTest. I cannot understate how much I like this thing now. Like I'm actually excited to like find ways that I can use ConfTest just improve different parts of the overall workflow that had been covered by, you know, like a mismatch of different tools. I like to keep the amount of tools I use very minimal and make sure that they're really good. Like if I can use them in different places and they work well in different places, that's great. Yeah, it's really nice too that you can use it for things like Terraform or like the Docker files, which brings me back to the other aspect of this and how it connects to the topics of continuous delivery and, and DevOps. That now we have the idea of like DevSecOps and security through automation and OPA and Rego and ConfTest. They give you a structure to say, hey, I know that I have these sort of security concerns potentially. Like as you mentioned, no app should open up port 22 or open up port 80 or something like that. Instead of relying on Alice or humans to go in and verify all these things, you can leverage automation tools to bake that into your process either like if it's in your cluster or in your CI process, it's like static validation on config to meet these high level objectives. So when the project started, what was the perspective on the initial use cases for some of this? Was it in the vein of automation or security or you know, how did it look at the beginning? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. I think we had a lot of different ideas in mind about how these things could be applied, about how technology could be applied. I mean, I think policy is like sufficiently general to cover just about anything, right? And I, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, like stopping th bad things from happening in the system, that's really what it's about a lot of the time, right? It's like um, having a security breach is really bad, but, you know, runaway resource utilization that brings down the website and you're no longer selling, you know, dog food or whatever is, is also really bad, right? So. I, I personally, I'm interested in security, um, but I also think that the more general problem of how you manage uh, distributed systems at scale reliably and effectively is the interesting problem. And that's kind of where I come in with it. And, and I think that a lot of what that comes back to is what you just said, which is not having 50 different ways of saying the same thing across the 50 different systems you have to manage, but instead having one way of writing down you know, the rules that control who can do what essentially across those 50 different systems. So. It was motivated out of security, obviously, but there were other drivers. We also looked at other kinds of use cases, not just around validation, but also essentially mutation, right? So like, for example, workload placement. Um, you might want to control where a workload goes based on attributes of that workload, right? Like maybe it has to run on a cluster that's PCI uh, certified, or maybe it has to run in Europe because it's for like a European client or something like that, right? So there's lots of other kinds of applications for these, these policies beyond just validation. And those were things that we did lots of work with, with early on. Now, obviously, we've seen a lot of people take it and run it for, for validation. So that's what you hear about mostly. But there's just a long tail of other use cases. I, I was chatting with somebody the other day that was like using it to define, basically, like they built a little VPN gateway for their company out of it. So they would define the rules, basically, the, the, the IP table rules. 
um, would get generated out of, out of policy and then pushed down. But it was all kind of specified in this nice high-level declarative format. So there's a ton of different ways that you can use it. That's what kind of gets me kind of excited about it, I guess. Yeah, I think, and also the scale which you can operate if you adopt these technologies. I think it's always important to consider the N as terms of like the organization size or like the number of services one has or anything like that. Because like, as you mentioned, coming back to this person named Alice, who's you know looking at things, it's one thing if you have say one application and you can have one human being look at it and say like, yes, it's free of this or whatever. But at some point you're gonna have more than one, you might have 10, you might have 100, you might have 1,000. And at some point, you have to rely on automation as a way to enforce all these things, but also just to make sure that they're actually there for all the stuff you're going to put into uh, production. So it's it's really important, especially at uh, enterprise scale. I actually have another question, which was uh, about a component I'm not familiar with. As you mentioned, so we've so far we've talked about OPA, we talked about Rego, and we talked about ConfTest. But you brought up Gatekeeper. So what's Gatekeeper? So Gatekeeper is the evolution of OPA in in the Kubernetes space for admission control. So Gatekeeper provides kind of a first-class integration between Open Policy Agent and and Kubernetes. So it gives you a way of managing all of your policies, like controlling what policies are applied on the cluster through kind of like a native Kubernetes interface through CRDs. And then it brings in some other really nice functionality in Kubernetes, like auditing, for example. So you know, one of the one of the really important kind of design criteria that we had or considerations that we had for, for OPA and Rego was that the policies that you write ought to be and must be portable in that you should be able to take them and run them in different locations for different reasons, right? So when you write down a policy that says, you know, all containers must specify CPU and memory limits, you obviously want to take that and have it enforced, let's say, at the cluster level when new containers are being instantiated. But ideally, you can take that exact same policy and run it in other places. So you want to be able to run it ahead of time during CICD or as a kind of pre-merge hook, right? So that you tell your developer when they open the PR that they didn't, you know, set the configuration correctly. They don't want to to wait for however long it takes for that configuration to flow through the pipeline and then get rejected at the cluster level. Because they might not even know where the cluster is. They might not know how to debug that, right? And there goes your day, right? Now now you've like lost a day because you've been debugging something that you could have just found out, you know, as as a pre-merge hook. So you want to, you want to have that portability, and similarly, like you want to be able to take the same policy and ask after the fact, you know, what resources in my cluster would violate or do violate this new policy that I'm going to be introducing right before I roll it out. So one of the things that Gateviewer brings is this audit kind of controller functionality where you can have it configured to periodically go out and scan all of the resources in your cluster and then give you back a report that says, you know, these are the resources that violate these rules, basically. So Gatekeeper is this like really great kind of integration between OPA and Kubernetes, and it's kind of the joint work of us, you know, Styra, um, as well as Microsoft, Google, and, and, and others. So it's a great project, and it just actually yesterday or the day before went to, to GA, so it's stable now. Oh, well, congratulations on that one. Big milestone there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I got one last question for you before we, before we go. So I understand Gatekeeper is a purpose-built way to integrate OPA and Kubernetes because, you know, Kubernetes is, of course, there's a large amount of people using Kubernetes and it's a good platform. And there's a hook, as you mentioned, in the API server for the emission controllers. You know, there's more out there than just Kubernetes. So is there anything on the horizon for OPA in the terms of like uh, Gatekeeper type integrations for other systems? That's a good question. I, 
right now, I mean, so Kubernetes is like sucking the oxygen, I think, out of a lot of discussions, right? And for, for good reason, like it, it, it helps unify like your kind of your platforms, right? Your workload platforms. So I think it's definitely the dominant thing that we see in that kind of like platform infrastructure space in terms of whether you're talking about managing containers or servers or cloud accounts, like that's where we see people kind of focusing right now. But in terms of other like interesting integrations, um, one of the things that, that we've been working on for a little while now that we're continuing to develop all the time is, is, is basically the ability to take your, your OPA policies and through OPA compile them into, into WebAssembly so that you can take those WebAssembly compiled policies and run them in new kinds of places. So like obviously it's useful for potentially doing some kind of pre-checks in the browser perhaps. But it's also useful from a number of other different applications for things like optimization um, and running in, in other kind of environments where OPA doesn't run today, right? Like if you look at a CDN, for example, they don't run OPA and they, they don't have OPAs in their in their POPs today. Um, and maybe they won't because of WebAssembly, but they do have WebAssembly runtime. So if, for example, if you wanted to do some enforcement, like at the edge edge of the network, that's like one application for it. There's a bunch of different interesting applications where you could take a WebAssembly compiled policy and have it kind of executed in these standardized environments. So that's something we've been working on for a little while now. We, we have full support now. You can compile any OPA policy into WebAssembly. Uh, and what we're looking at now is different ways that we can use that. So we're building out SDKs for different languages and runtimes. So you can have OPA policies effectively evaluated without an out-of-process call inside of any language or framework that has a WebAssembly runtime, which is pretty much all of them as well as just for optimization purposes. So while, while OPA does have some pretty sophisticated optimizations implemented in it, it is still like an interpreter implemented in Go. So there's there's a bunch of overhead during a policy evaluation just by that fact. There's like interpretive overhead that comes from that. Um, and WebAssembly allows us to get rid of a lot of that. So for certain use cases that require very, very, very fast response times, like very low latency on the order of microseconds or even less, nanoseconds, OPA isn't always like a good fit, but, but WebAssembly can be. So we, we're, we're actually in the process also of like integrating it into the OPA runtime proper so that it can be used as like an evaluation path. For, I'm excited by it. It, uh, it's, it touches a bunch of different interesting places and, and it's something that we're working on right now. Yeah, okay. So when you mentioned WebAssembly, I kind of was taken aback. Like, what WebAssembly? Like, what are you doing in the browser? But then when you mentioned, oh, okay, well, you can use this in any language that has a WebAssembly runtime. That, oh, okay, now this is a bridge into using these policies and executing them locally in any particular language. So coming back to my example of doing like contract validation on an incoming API request, outgoing responses that, oh, if there was a WebAssembly runtime, then, hey, I could use these policies for this. And as you mentioned, you could maybe get microseconds or nanoseconds, which is going to be way faster than what you're going to get from JavaScript or pretty much any other interpreted language. You're going to have to go compile for that for sure. All right. Well, Torn, it was my pleasure to talk to you about uh, OPA, Rego, ConfTest, and the whole project. Uh, really great work. Really happy to get a feel for these tools, use them, and uh, try to share them with the, with the listeners and to everyone out there because I think these are you know, really amazing tools. So great work to you and everybody over there and you know, pass my well wishes along to everybody. Very cool. Thanks a lot. So is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we go? Um, no, I mean, thanks for inviting me on. I guess the one thing I'll just mention is that OPA is very flexible, right? It's very domain agnostic, it's very general purpose, but it doesn't do anything unless you integrate it into, into other systems, unless you put it in your CI CD system or you build an integration with Kubernetes or you build an integration with whatever it is that you need it to be integrated with. And so we, we really love to see new integrations between OPA and systems that people care about and that use and that want to have better policy support for. So if you have an idea for an integration, you know, feel free to post an issue on GitHub or come on Slack. There's a, there's a Slack organization for the project and feel free to contribute it. We love we love contributions in the form of integrations. So yeah, that's what I'll leave us with. And uh, if you are curious about 
uh, how to use these things or need help, then the Slack channel is a great way to get feedback from the people who actually maintain the project. Like when I was learning Rego, you know, Torin was grateful enough to you know, answer my questions and point me like, hey, you should do this or you should not do this. Or like, hey, what you're doing here is just not going to work. Like, oh, okay. Because like, at least for me, learning Rego was sufficiently different enough from the other languages that I was exposed to that I had to learn a different way to think about it because the domain is different. So a lot of helpful people out there in the project if you want to learn. So thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you once again, Torin, for coming on the show. That wraps up this batch. Visit smallbatches.fm for the show notes. Also find Small Batches FM on Twitter and leave your comments in the thread for this episode. More importantly, subscribe to this podcast for more episodes just like this one. If you enjoyed this episode, then tweet it or post it to your team Slack or rate this show on iTunes. It all supports the show and helps me produce more Small Batches. Well, I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Want to learn more about DevOps without wasting your time? Then sign up for my free email course at freedevopscourse.com. My course combines the best from the DevOps handbook, Accelerate, and years of software delivery experience. You'll learn the three ways of DevOps and the four KPIs of software delivery performance. More importantly, I'll show you how to put that theory into practice. That means shipping better software faster. Sign up today at freedevopscourse.com. Like the sound of small batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.